here in New York with the G League president, Sharif Abdurrahim. Sharif, how are you? I am doing well. Well, how are you? I'm good. I, you know, I thought, for some reason, I thought it was commissioner of the G League. <laughs> and then I looked back. No, it's president. Why didn't you negotiate commissioner? No, no. Well, we have, we have, it was one, at, at the time, it was only one commissioner, uh, Adam, obviously. And then, you know, we um, brought on Kathy um, Engelberg. Um, not too long ago, so we have two commissioners now. I think that's enough at the at the NBA. I don't know. Maybe your next renegotiation, you can get the like all the GMs in a the league. They all become president, and, and then they hire a GM. It's, it's you the just same shift thing. titles around. It's yeah. the same thing. They're still running. Yeah, everything. they're yeah. still running it. But now yeah. another team who comes in can't hire your assistant GM to be their GM because you call them GM, yeah, right? That's I don't know. I'm, I'm <laughs> president. President is is good. President is out, president. president is outstanding. You you took over in December. Malcolm Turner, the previous president, went to Vanderbilt, then hired Jer- Jerry Stackhouse right out of the, essentially out of the G League yeah. as his coach. Uh, I, you know, the feeling had been Sharif. You know, since you retired, you were in um, Sacramento in their organization. You ran their G League team. You worked in their front office. Then you worked in the league office. And I know, like every, I can think of multiple teams in the league, and I'm sure there's some I don't even know about who have wanted to hire you. Um, a couple of big market teams I know tried to get you uh, on either coast to for pretty high level front office jobs. You were in the league office. Did you think there for a while that's was your next move to go back to a team? And then Adam Silver comes to you with run the G League. Well, like you said, we had I had a couple of opportunities uh, since leaving Sacramento and being here to go back with teams and. You know, really it was, it was, you know, at this time it was like a family decision. You know, my, you know, my family was hard. My children had grown up in Sacramento essentially when we came to New York. My son was starting high school. My daughter was starting middle school. And the only thing they knew was California. So getting them out of California was extremely painful. And then, you know, I, I really, at that time it was really those were, it were good opportunities, but it was a, it was a family decision that like, look, we're going to put some roots here and, let the kids enjoy high school and middle school and so forth. And then, you know, this opportunity being in league operations with, with basketball around basketball and the officials and all of that and learning that. But Adam and Mark to come to me with the opportunity to, to oversee the G League was, um, I thought a great opportunity, a great opportunity to kind of pull together all of what I've been learning, you know, through my playing career, since my career ended in the different capacities I've been in, what I've done, you know, like, one summer I came, you know, before I was here in between, interned in, in one of the, the business verticals in the, in the NBA. So it, it was, I, I thought it was just a great opportunity, great time for the G League, the work that Malcolm and Tommy, Dan Reed before him had done that really positioned us, you know, really well. I just, just, just a great opportunity at the time. So I'm, I'm totally into this and it, you know, it kind of worked out that I was, I was patient, um, and waited for this for this opportunity. So, yeah, and, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the G League. Twenty eight teams this season. You know, kind of the experimental rules. You got the free throw. I've talked to a couple of the coaches. I, about I, I, I got all of my basketball friends like giving me like sending me like explain the free throw rule to people. The experiment with free throws. So this year. so it's it's one for two free throws essentially, um, and. It, other than a, a three pointer, so you, know, you get one, you you shoot one free throw for two or three points right. throughout the first forty six minutes of the game. Last two minutes, it goes back to 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 normal, the normal way of doing things. And um, the idea there is one, you know, 
what testing, what learning can we get from this as it relates to, to, to game flow, to the, the time of the game? I think the data tells us that, you know, fans watching the games, one of the things they, they like least about, you know, our games are the breaks and free throws. So is there something around there that we can find positive findings? And then, you know, just from a total G League perspective, we're always looking for ways of making our game a little more interesting, a little, you know, some nuance that's different from the NBA that folks could point to. And, you know, in this, you know, I have all my like, buddies that coach and colleagues that are you know, general managers and, and coaches that are, like sending me, you know, dirty text messages <laughs> of upset about the rule. But again, I, 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 you know, I've been to G League games so far this season. I'm not, um, I'm not offended. Like, I, I actually, surprisingly, I, I like it. I, optically, it doesn't um, disrupt anything to me. And I, like, I would tell like coaches, like we've done this. My 12 years of playing, this was the way we, this was the way practice went. That if you got fouled, you shot one free throw, and we kept going. So, you know, I think, it, I think it's good for our game. You know, part of the G League beyond developing players and now coaches, front office people. It's a feeder system into the league on a lot of levels. It's a place to experiment, like you said. How often do you get, like, and I guess maybe it comes more to you now because of your position, like what, what's the craziest idea someone has brought to you in the last couple of years about, do you think we could get, and, I, and, and it's got to go through a lot of levels. You don't arbitrarily decide what yeah. rule change. But what, so, what's like the craziest idea somebody had about, Experimenting. Let's see if this would work in the G League, um, you know, and, and see if and see if it's something the NBA would so might so, look at. So, like, even on my time, even in my time in, on the league operations side, you get you know that would really be the process that right. it would you know be something that you constantly looking at the game, analyzing the game, and from a league operation standpoint, we go through this cycle of okay, what did what do we need to do? So you know, take the emergence of of the threes. Like, okay, you, you, you have some teams shooting 53s that half of their field goals are three-pointers. Is there something that we should be doing around that? Should we be moving the line back? You know, I've heard folks. I've, the like, corner three is I've heard, yeah. like, I mean, like really re- people, I really, really respect their basketball knowledge. They take the corner three out. And, yeah. you know, and me as a basketball person, I say, okay, that's only for all the space that we have. You take the corner three out. The only thing that's going to do is, like, Clog up mm-hmm. the the game, clog up the paint, clog up the lane. So I don't think, but but those things. I, I mean, you, you're always looking at folks are always, um, you know, one for two for a long time was one changing. You know, at the point of when the penalty free throws come in were another. Um, for for officials, I mean, yep. we, we actually in the G League we actually tested that. You know, you look at it. So I don't think it. You know, the we don't really want to limit on. What you suggest, I think the process of going from league operations analyzing it, we take it to our competition committee, which is made up of you know, three of our head coaches, three of our general managers, owners, and you know vet what we should be testing even in the G League. So even the one for two free throws has to go through that right. cycle of testing before it gets there. Sharif, the the pro path uh, program mm-hmm. that was voted in last year. And so you had uh, Rod Strickland and, uh, you know, his group going through, you know, essentially trying to find and and educate 
players, families, whomever, about the idea of if you don't want to go to college, if you're a high school player and you are a legitimate, the caveat, you've got to be a legitimate NBA prospect. It's not just any kid can go come and get $125,000 for a year, but that's, but for a high level player, $125,000 a year salary, which is uh, more than double, you know, more than double the, almost probably triple the normal G League salary, right? Um, and then you'd go in the draft the following year. I think we thought there might be one or two guys, maybe in the first one. There turned out to not be any last year. And the guys who didn't go to college, um, LaMelo Ball's unique because his eligibility was kind of gone. He went to Europe earlier. Um, RJ Hampton, mm-hmm. they both got to Australia where you're going to get paid significantly more than that G League. And so they might have been candidates for that, uh, but went overseas. What have you found among high school players, families, coaches, sneaker, all the people who would have influence on this about their appetite for for that program? I think one, number one, folks respect the, the level – of uh, competition in the G League. And they understand that this is truly the path now towards preparing players for the NBA. You know, opening night rosters, over 40%, over 40% of players on opening night roster had G League experience. What, what we found, and really the approach, Woj, was that we wanted to start with just educating folks. Like this would be a, a, a total, you know, somewhat departure of the norm. So to think that, in year one, we would, you know, present this opportunity, um, and, you know, you would, you know, get all takers. You know, we didn't have that expectation that it really, and, and we didn't, you know, the approach with, with Rod wasn't to recruit, you know, or to make a case for the G League over any other option. It was really to say, this is an option. And I'd say that came from really, you know, sentiment coming from the overall basketball community that, if a kid doesn't want to go to college and he wants another option, he really should have somewhere else he can land. And that's that's mm-hmm. the G League. That's what we presented. We'd say that, you know, for a kid that feels good about it, this is an unbelievable opportunity to come and prepare and get yourself ready for professional basketball on the court and off the court. And I think our our teams have proven their ability to develop, you know, NBA, very good NBA players. You look at the guys now, you know, the Kendrick Nunns and Daniel Houses that spend a year, two years in our in our league, and they're now, you know, terrific NBA players. Here's the thing that I imagine you have working against the G League to get that high school player is, especially if the player is getting advice from an agent at that point, and he's going to be with, you know, an agent who is going to, help him through that year and then into the draft and into his pro career that it is very, and you just said it, it is a very high level of basketball and you are 18 years old and you're coming in with 27, 28, 29 or, you know, veteran or guys who have been in pro basketball for years or played four years of college and that it's really hard for an 18 year old coming out of high school to go in that G League environment and not maybe be a little overwhelmed, even a really good player. And they, and I think there's a thought of, is that going to help his draft status? Are we better just to have him sit out and work out, uh, like Darius Baisley did? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it didn't end up hurting him with the draft. Is that 
something you're almost a victim of. It is not easy for a kid that age to walk in that league. Yeah, well, look, I, I think we know that, you know, for the kids we're talking about, to your point, um, you know, this is for, you know, what we feel like are the for sure legitimate NBA prospects. For that kid, if our rule would change, that kid would be drafted into the NBA. Mm-hmm. And that kid would feel good about his chances of going into the NBA and feel, feeling as though he can contribute. So, you know, personally, the idea, you know, What's different now is that in high school, our kids have so much access to playing against pros. These kids, I get the, you know, obviously I get the idea that, you know, you want to be cautious and not, you know, put the kids so far, you know, out there in the G League and the G League is tough. But the thought that the kids we're talking about couldn't compete in the in the G League, I, I think they could. I, I agree it's, a, it's tough. Like our, our league is competitive, it's good, but – I do believe, like, the really, really good high school kids could, could find their way. Um, I think our job is to, to create a, a platform and a situation that's, that helps them and, and shows them how they develop, how they grow, um, doesn't exploit them, doesn't, you know, take advantage of them, make sure they're in good situations. When you're as big of a basketball fan as I am, you know what's easy to forget about everything else during the season? So 1-800-Flowers.com is here to remind you about all those upcoming birthdays, anniversaries, or special events that might have slipped your mind. No need to panic, though, because 1-800-Flowers will get your bouquet where it needs to go for a price that you won't believe. And right now, 1-800-Flowers is giving my listeners an exclusive 24 for 24 offer. That's 24 multicolored roses for $24. That's only a dollar per rose. They offer beautiful arrangements of premium roses and a variety of colors, perfect for birthdays, anniversaries, my personal favorite screw-ups, or special just-because moments. Picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness, 24 multicolored roses for $24 is an amazing limited-time offer. For life's most important moments, you can trust and depend on 1-800-Flowers.com. To order 24 multicolored roses for $24, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code WOJ, W-O-J. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, code WOJ, W-O-J. Hurry. Offer ends on Friday. Sharif, your your career, a dozen years in the NBA, an all-star Jalen Rose saw you here on the way in, and he's been yelling 20 and 10 at me all morning since he knew you were coming. Nobody remembers Sharif was a 2010 guy. You had one 2010 season and a bunch right. of 20 <laughs> plus, but, but eight and nine, eight and nine rebounds. Like, right, those, you know, that last one's tough. Uh, but your time in, you, you came into the league in Vancouver and spent several years there before you went on to Atlanta and a couple other places. What was the NBA, when you think back to Vancouver and the NBA, and being in there on the ground floor, you know, Toronto had come in and two organizations that did it differently. Toronto was bringing in veteran players at the beginning and you were in, uh, was, you know, big country Reeves and you and different philosophy in Vancouver. What do you remember about the city, the NBA there? When you think back, it really wasn't there very long. Yeah, well, I mean, so six, seven years and, you know, I was there five years. Um, one, the city, like, if, you know, if you've been to Vancouver, yeah, like yeah. unbelievable one of our great North American cities, like unbelievable city. Uh, people there uh, were great, were great to me. 
I grew up a lot. Being a, I'm a kid, a Georgia, a kid from Georgia, and you know, I I went as far as you could go, you know, from home. You know, one start, you know, stop first at Cal for a year, and then you know, in just the, kept going. Yeah, anyway, I, I I remember, um, you know, being drafted and, and getting on the plane, sitting next to my agent, and asking him, okay, so like, where is Vancouver? And I played in the Pac-10, you know, Pac-12, you know, then Pac-10. That year, he said, "Well, it's next to Seattle." I said, "Okay, I knew, you know, I knew University <laughs> of Washington." I said, "Okay, next to Seattle," but like unbelievable city, unbelievable experience. In a lot of ways, we were, you know, teaching folks about basketball and about the NBA. Um, our like our stars were were known there. So at that time, Jordan and the Lakers, Shaq, um, they were known, and folks loved to come out and see them. We hadn't, we didn't get the opportunity from a Vancouver Grizzlies standpoint to turn turn the community into a Vancouver Grizzly town. It's amazing. You know, I go to Toronto now and the amount of basketball and basketball highlights that are on um, TV, you know, just, you know, regular TV. And, and at that time, I mean, we had, we had to, you know, you had to do all kinds of things just to get the highlights and updates from around the NBA on, you know, normal. You couldn't have um, – like at that time, you couldn't have direct TV there. Right. So, so you'd so, see curling, curling in hockey. Right? Yeah. So you had to like, you know, we had to like figure out ways to like sneak our 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 league pass in and, and things like that. Did Did people know when to cheer during? A no, game? they were they were very educated about about the game. Okay. They understood the game. Yeah. They they just we hadn't we we weren't able to raise to the level of competition that they became Vancouver yeah. Grizzlies fans. And now when we played Toronto, that was like, that was wonderful. Like that was, you know, but it, we weren't able to get good enough to make it a real rivalry, but they, they understood the game. You know, the, you know, like Jay Triano did radio for us at the time. Right. So he was at that time, he was like the biggest uh, uh, Canadian basketball player to, you know, come from, you know, around BC. This is before, and this is before Nash. Um, so like very well educated about the game. Um, Passion for the game, um, but it like at the, I, in, in a lot of ways, you can say now, especially like in the Ontario area, more Montreal is coming now, has you know really you know burst out from a basketball standpoint, um, and I think a lot of that is definitely the success of you know what Toronto's done, you know Vince being there, but you know a, a little bit we've had you know a few Kelly Olynyk and yep. you know a few other um, Sarver. Um, Soccer. What, what the kid went to Gonzaga. I'm, I'm, his, his name is slipping my mind now. But we've had a few yeah. come from BC that were um, big time players. You, your work ethic was legendary as a player. And talked to I talked to one of your former coaches there. And in the off season, you'd work out three times a day, right? And then in season, they would tell me you would get there way before anybody else. You would do skill work on the court before, well before practice, right? You'd practice, and then you'd stay and shoot and uh, d- during the season. Yeah. Just a regimen. Where, um, and I think people, you weren't the most, you're, you're long, you were 6'10", 6'9", 6'10". This is the, the day of. In the new NBA, they measure you at what, 6'8 and a half? Yeah. Right. Um, but, but you weren't, you know, it's funny. I look at that Olympic team you were on in 2000 and um, Vince and uh, Antonio McDice who could jump to mm-hmm. the moon 
and did jump to the moon and save you in Sydney and that tip inning. He did, right, right. I want to ask you about that. I was I was courtside for that. Uh, but where did that come from with you? Um, the, 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 the desire to just be in the gym all the time and and become as skilled of a player as, as yeah. you were. And, and and this was this was probably like the time before the you know five skilled development coaches. So right. you know we had like at, at that time people don't and you had no Instagram to put it on. Yeah, like, nothing. What's was, the point of practicing if you can't right, put it on it was, Instagram all it was, day? It was right? just us. And at that time, believe it or not, Lawrence Frank, who's the president of the Clippers, he was you know, like our youngest assistant coach at the time, and we kind of had a routine where I would get to practice early, and he would be in the coaches' meetings. And he'd hear me out on the court and he'd lead the coaches meeting and we'd work and, you know, he and I started. And then, you know, at a certain point, you know, Mike Bibby was young yep. and he would come and Michael Dickerson. And we had, you know, a good group of young what guys. Would you call like the breakfast club or something? Is that what you called it? Something? Just, Just the, the early Vancouver. Early, early Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but we would, we would work and a lot of the, the, you know, work that we did helped be, you know, there, grow as an NBA player, but then, you know, beyond my career, Lionel Hollins was there early, you know, this is before, you know, before his, his stint in Memphis as a head coach. Um, and, but, but honestly, I just, I wanted to be good. Like it was, you know, I was, I was in the NBA. I, to, to your point, I knew I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the fastest guy. I wasn't jumping over people. Um, I had to keep getting better. I think that's what made me, that's what helped me get to that point was working hard and, being dedicated to the game and, and wanting to continue to improve. And you know, it, it, in that way, it didn't let me down. I think those are um, traits and, and and habits that I've tried to, you know, transition into to my to this second career. That, that 2000 Olympic team in Sydney, first of all, that was, um, I don't know what your experience was in Australia. That was a, I was there for that whole Olympics. Um, I haven't been back to Australia since. I'd like to. Me either. I'd, I'd love to get go back. back. Yeah. Bondi Beach. I still have like a <laughs> Bondi Beach sweatshirt yeah. in like a closet. Uh, that team, though, and um, Rudy T is the coach, mm-hmm. and we, we uh, Jason, uh, Jason Kidd and Vince Carter, and that was the that was the um, the Vince Carter he jumped over Frederick Weiss, yeah. the next pick. <laughs> yeah, were, were you on the court? I was on the bench. It was like. It's one of those things that happens, and you're like, "Did that just?" And, and you react, and you're like, "Did that? Did he just? He just jumped over." I mean, Weiss was what, like seven two? Yeah. And you're like, "Did he just do that?" <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable. What What was that? Uh, that experience with that group in that Olympics was was like what? Unbelievable, you know. I think I think the misnomer about NBA players is like everybody's friends and everybody hangs out and we all know each other. And you know that was you know Steve Smith and I became really good friends. I you know growing up in Atlanta and looked up to him just from a distance, and that's the first time he and I really got to spend time together. My wife and his wife became friends. Gary and Jason, I knew them, but I really got to spend and learn learn from them. I would work out with Alonzo. And I thought I worked, you know, I thought I was working hard and the stuff he was doing, you know, every day after practice, lifting and shooting, unbelievable. I would run with him, you know, Tim Hardaway. So that Allen Houston and I, so we, I mean, we were together like six weeks. We were together three or four weeks in Hawaii before, then we were there and, and we, we went to, to, to Melbourne for mm-hmm. a week or so. Then we were in Sydney. We would go every night 
after practice, it was like a bowling alley, you know, because that's where they, they have the Olympic teams, the, the men's basketball team and women's basketball team pulled away from, from, mm-hmm. from campus, from the, you know, from where all the other athletes are. So we were finding things to do to kind of occupy our time. We would go bowl every night. We'd split up and have teams. But this unbelievable experience of getting to know the guys and learning from them, getting to know their families, that, to me, that was the best part. I mean, and we, we, Came back with the we came back with the goal, like you said. With Jesse Cavage just shoots a a thirty footer yep. if he hits it. Like we're the you know we're that team that 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 doesn't come home with the goal. Did, did was that an unspoken thing or would you t- like nobody want like you don't want to come home? I mean that wasn't country. an option. Like that just it it was not an option. Like to came pretty close though. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. yeah, I think I mean I think that you know at least. I don't think it got the, the the widespread attention of like, hey, this team could be beat, you know. But I think you know internally, like we knew, like wow, like teams are, and even then, if you like Darius Ungala was on that yeah. team, Yessa Cavish was on that team, like you you knew it's some it's similar to what you saw this summer. Like you know, people had a lot to say about about the USA team losing, but you know they lose the friend, they lose the NBA. That's an NBA team. That yeah. there's not a you know it's not like a, a team of nine NBA players. It's five or six a team full of NBA players. And unlike our teams, they've played together their whole life. You know, throughout the summer, they come here and play NBA, and then they go back in the summers and play together. So they're like a real team. Um, so, but you you started to take note at, at that time. At least I did. Yeah, that Lithuania game in the semis, and I can still see I was at that covering that game. And I can still see Dice just yeah, uh, jumping us. over everybody with that <laughs> tip in, right? Yeah, yeah, saved us. Saved us. I mean, it's such a yeah. – and for us it was such – especially, you know, I think it's a little different now. It was such a different game in that, like, you know, big guys, you were all pulled away from the basket. Right. The game was a lot more physical, a lot more, you know, movement. I think our game, our NBA game now is closer to that international game that we see. Um but again, I'm you know I, I, every once in a while I look at my gold medal and <laughs> where, where do you, where do you keep it? Just in my in my safe at yeah. at, at home. Last thing on the Olympics, Reef, you had you had done a lot of you've been on a lot of bad teams in the NBA before you got to the yeah. Olympic team. You were on a rebuilding team. Uh, or an expansion team, I should say, in uh-huh. in Vancouver. What was it like to to get around great players and to be in such a competitive environment where it hadn't been that in Vancouver yet? Well, so in Vancouver, I was like, I was the uh, uh, I was the oldest of a bunch of young kids. I was probably you know in the Olympics, I was probably twenty two, and I was the oldest of a group of young kids trying to teach each other how to win and how to be competitive. To your point, and you know, I go to you know, I, I I get there, and there you have you know Alonzo Mourning, Gary Payton, Jason Kidd, Allen Houston, guys that have won, that have an a, a approach to the game, that you know you see their practice habits, you see their work ethic. Kevin Garnett, I mean, we would we would play well. We play one on one full court after practice before five of us. Like it would be almost like fights because no one. Wanted to lose. And it was like I, I saw like, like a, a year or so ago, like it was like footage circulated of, and it was like Kevin, 
he won, and he did win, and it circulated like he had scored all the points. Like the games were unbelievable, you know, and we would do it every day. But that level of competition, I would like talk to Jason or talk to Gary, and at that point I'm trying to figure out how to help my team in Vancouver be better. And I would talk to them about how they saw the game, how they their presence on their team. And, you know, I never forget, like Jason would say to me, he like, look, I'm going to win – 40 games. I won 41 games. And I was like, I, I didn't, you know, I'm a kid. I didn't understand. I was like, what you mean? He's like, no, no, I'm going to win. Like, I'll win. We'll be a 500 team. In, in New Jersey. Yeah, but, I'm, you know, I'm going to make us a 500 team. Now, if we get some good play, you know, if I get this, this, and this, we're going to be, you know, we have a chance to win. And that was a, you know, that was a different way of thinking. That, that, okay, was, a, like, that was a terrible New Jersey team he walked into, which won 20 games. Before, but and, he, and, and he, he said it at the press conference, but I thought it was crazy. They went to the finals. Yeah, and, and, and this is like before that, he yeah. you know, he said that to me personally before that, and that was like a different way of thinking of like that's the responsibility of a really good player of saying, okay, like I'm a, I'll make us a playoff team. I'll make us a winning team. Now if I get good players that want to come along with me, oh, we have a chance. So that, it was unbelievable, that, that experience for me. What, what's your best KG story from that Olympic summer? My best story with him, and so he and I are the same age. We go back to high school. My best story with him is, or my best, you know, the thing that sticks out with me with Kevin is this. When we were, um, you know, 17, 18, we both played on the um, Hoop Summit team. Mm -hmm. It was the first one. It was in um, Springfield. And Kevin came late. and and Bob Bob Hurley was the coach, right? Hurley was the coach. um, And, you know, this is really right before Kevin where Kevin announced that he was going to come into the, the NBA. So he came with a, he came a couple of days late. We had practiced a couple of days, put plays in, and Coach Hurley is Coach Hurley, and he's, you know, fussing and getting on everybody like he was our everyday coach. So Kevin Kevin literally comes in, he has his coat on, he has, like, jeans on, he takes that stuff off, and, like, you know, at this time, like, Sean Ford and Jim Tooley and those guys around, they give him his stuff, he puts his stuff on, and he comes out and and – practice with us and you know at that time it wasn't the way it is now where kids you know they like you know my son plays he you know he's played this other kid from somewhere 10 times a summer like you never we never played against each other and the thing with Kevin was even at that time like folks saw the passion that he played with in the NBA he played with that at 17 and 18 years old like he came out and practice he didn't know any plays he hadn't been with us. He hadn't stretched. He hadn't done anything. And for that hour and a half of practice, he played so hard. The pace of practice went from one place to, like, a new stratosphere. He was unbelievably, you know, like I remember he had a breakaway dunk. He took the ball and, like, somebody was trailing behind him. He, like, threw it, tossed it back to, like, his team. You know, so, like, his maturity, his intensity was, like, so high even at a younger age. And, like, at that point, I remember getting on the bus and thinking to myself, you know, you still had that, like, bravado of like I'm better you know that thing and just thinking like man he played hard and like it it and and you saw him like you know you know however much money he made however many years later he was still that same Kevin Bob Hurley told me that story about that practice and you know he knew this Garnett kid was coming in and like you said you had been practicing a couple days and he said, I'm not going to let this guy just walk in and play in the game. He hasn't practiced. These guys are here. Who the, who the hell does this kid think he is? You know, I was like, I'm not going to. He goes, and then the kid comes in the gym. He goes, and then he went up and down a few times. And I said, 
all right, give give Garnett a uniform. Yeah, you know, like, like this guy's yeah, right. Like, just I'm like again, like the the level. You know, like a guy yeah. can take the level, you know, from one place to a totally different place. Yeah, it, their personality. Think of that um, Olympic team too. Guys, you were around Alonzo Mourning, KG, a ferocity about them. Your personality was different. You compete as hard. Yeah, well, but, I, could, I, I, I'd say like I, you know, you play against Kevin or Alonzo, like they're like talking, like and and people think they're like talking mess to you. They're like talking to themselves. For me, I, I had to have you know a calmness or a, a balance to be able to compete and keep my emotions and keep my you know keep my composure. And I think for, for like for those guys, like they wanted to go somewhere like totally different, and and it worked for them. You know, in my way. You know, you know, work for me, and you see it. You know, you see it now with different guys. You just, you just have different ways of, of motivating yourself and getting yourself going. You think back to your recruitment and what it was like. A, a Georgia kid goes to Cal and gets drafted, and goes to the Hoop Summit, and you know, just meets these players who he's only heard about or maybe read about. I don't want to say Street and Smith. You're not that old. No, Street Smith was everything for us. Oh, okay. Like making making Street Smith was was the biggest deal at that time. Absolutely, yeah, yeah right. And yeah. and and now your son Jabri, he's going to University of Virginia. He's a top twenty thirty national player. He's going through. He went through the recruiting. He's gone through the travel basketball circuit. He plays at a high level, elite high school level. How different is it to watch what it's become, the the what the system has become, and what it means to be a high level player versus when when you came out, which really wasn't that long. ago. Yeah, you know, I think the the biggest thing now is like it's so much expectations on these kids. Like I was able to all of the things that you know I'm you know it was nobody around us. Like that story I'm telling you with. With hoops on me, it was nobody. It was no. I, I don't remember seeing media cameras. Nobody was live tweeting it. Yeah, it was nothing. You know, no expectations. We did all of that in, you know, somewhat, you know, you know, just obscurity, somewhat, right? And I think, you know, everything that the kids now are doing, and, and my son, you know, you if he has an amazing game, it's, you know, it's it's everywhere. And if he if he had an awful game, it's it's everywhere and analyzed. And I I think that's a lot to put on young kids that are growing developing and trying to figure out what they can and, and cannot do. Um, that, to me, that's the biggest, you know, they have, I think, you know, on the positive side, they have unbelievable accessibility to, I, I never played against, you know, high level college players, professional players. I didn't have access to that stuff. You know, my first time having access to that was going to Kyle and, you know, playing against Chris Mullen and Tim and, Rod Higgins and those guys, like you know, you can he can he can go down to the pier and you know in the summer and and you know Ty Jerome was there, Donovan was there, you know, and he can touch and feel and those guys will you know you know slap him on the butt and mm-hmm. tell him to keep trying that sort of stuff. I you know I I didn't you know coming from Georgia I didn't I didn't have so all of you know that part of it I, I think is you know both kind of the good and bad. Are the big differences? I think the accessibility, but then just the the over analysis of, of kids at such a an exposure of kids at such a young young age. I don't know, uh, Sharif, if I had really any way to look up the numbers on this, but maybe there is a way to do it. But um, as as a Muslim playing in the NBA and playing during Ramadan, mm-hmm. what did that mean for your how? 
for that stretch of time, I, I was told that your numbers would actually go up. Yeah, like Stu Jackson did that when I was in Vancouver. They were so they were really worried about me fasting mm-hmm. um, and playing. And you know, at a certain point, after a couple of years, he like had someone go and I guess do the analytics on it. This is before, <laughs> but it showed that I was like more productive and I played better during Ramadan. And, and for me, it wasn't really that big of a deal. I'd done it. Yeah, you know, I'd done it from the time I was seven, eight years old. It fast from the time I was seven, eight years old. So really, you know, it wasn't much of a. Um, to me, it wasn't a hardship. I'd grown up, you know, watching guys like Hakeem do it in the, you know, in the finals and um, admired him. So to me, it was, it was, it, it didn't really present the obstacle. I think that you know other people saw it with things that I needed to do to prepare and make sure I had the energy and that and so on and so forth. But you know, again, my purpose and so forth, I was fine. Ruth, what has it meant or felt like to be? a Muslim American, a Muslim in America over these last several years, the climate, the all that has come with it. What's it been like for that community? What's it been like for you? Yeah, well, you know, again, I I, I don't know a separation. Like I grew up, you know, a Muslim in America. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can remember from, you know, again, like, you know, growing up in a, in a state like, like Georgia wasn't, you know, being in a class where, you know, was no other Muslim kids. It was no one else who had a name that sounded like mine or my sister's. Um, it was no one else that, you know, dressed like my mother uh, to, you know, playing in the NBA, now having children. And, you know, I, I, I can't remember a time where my children didn't have other classmates that were Muslims. And this is, you know, from Sacramento to you know, New Jersey, right? Um, I think, you know, what, you know, what are, you know, you know, all that has gone on throughout my, especially my professional, my sports career and time in the NBA, it's, 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 it's required that I'm, you know, thoughtful and, and patient and explaining Islam to people. Um, it, I think for all Muslims, it's, it's required that, you you have to kind of pull out of your shell and and, and 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 your little enclave of community and be a part of the larger community to you know be able to tell your story and 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 uh, show your civility and 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 what Islam is about you know because if if there's a a different narrative or someone is you know understanding it differently it's also you know you know your responsibility to explain what your way of life is about. And I think it's, it's been that, you know, um, more, more than anything. I, you know, fortunately I, I haven't, you know, from, again, I was, you know, I was in the NBA during, um, nine 11. Um, I've been through, you know, different, um, you know, rhetoric and narratives throughout our, um, uh, environment. I just, I haven't had a, a negative experience. Um, I haven't, you know, all of them have been, you know, teammates, communities, you know, fans, you know, inquisitive in questions. As a young kid in Georgia, like you said, there's not another Muslim in class. There's not another name that sounds like yours. And oh, by the way, like you're bigger than everybody else, yeah. right? Like you're t- so like you're going to stand out. Um would you feel that when you walk into a class when you're a young person? Well, and you have 11, 11 brothers 12 and sisters, 12, yeah. 12 of you. 12. 
And you're second yeah. oldest? I'm the second oldest, yes. Um, so I have a little sister, so I have a little sister the same age as my son. My sister just committed to Notre Dame, so she's going to go play for Coach Muffet at Notre Dame. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like, it's a, yeah. lot, it's a lot of us. <laughs> and, and, and basketball, everybody's kind of been connected to basketball in one way or another. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that like, though, as a kid when you, you – you never – you don't always want to stand out when you, you want to fit in when you're a kid. What, what, what was it like to go through that in Georgia? Well, I, look, I think I think part of growing up is, is, is like, going through those awkward – we all have those, like, awkward, uncomfortable – Years, I think mine were like growing faster than you know. Probably my parents could keep up with buying me clothes and my feet growing and those sort of things. Again, to to the point of having a funny last name. You know, in in, in some ways, that kind of drove me to basketball. I wanted mm-hmm. to be good at it. Um, you know, it was a, it was a place where you know none of that other stuff mattered. I was I could I could compete here. I was good enough here. Um, you know, I was definitely like accepted. There, they built they built confidence and and other other skills that had have aided me throughout. G League calendar here, Sharif. As we close up, G League showcase in Vegas right yep. before Christmas, mm-hmm. right? Um, yep, unbelievable time. Yep. You know what's, what's exciting this year about our showcase? If we've done it, we moved it around. It was in it was in Reno for a time. It was in Mississauga, and that was last, cold. That was yeah, cold. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the last. You know, last year we took it and we, you know, we, we took it to Vegas and partnered with MGM. So it's in, it's in MGM, um, hotels. And, you know, so it's like a one-stop shop. You get all of the top, uh, NBA presidents and general managers yep. there. All of our teams there. All of our, you know, teams get two teams. What's exciting this year is we, for the first 12 to 13 games of our season, we, we've implemented or we're testing a tournament schedule. So we're keeping our, our records of our teams in a, in a quarter system. And then our top four teams at showcase will compete in our own, in our version of a, a kind of uh, mid season tournament, winter showcase right. tournament. And our championship game will be on ESPN two. We'll air it on ESPN two. The winning team will win, um, win a, a prize of a hundred thousand dollars and, you know, coming from the NBA people, that's a, of, that's a lot of that's a that, lot of that's a lot of subway and uh, they, they subway. Sneeze, they sneeze uh, at a hundred thousand dollars in the, in the on the NBA side, but yeah. for our guys, yeah. to, to your point of the earlier right. uh, earlier earlier thoughts around salary, that's a big deal for us. We're excited for it. So to have our championship game yeah. on ESPN two and to this first test of our our kind of midseason tournament is is exciting for us. Yeah, guys can load up at Jersey Mike's. With there that. you go. <laughs> uh, I always say, like <clears throat> when I, I go to that G League showcase most years. It's a great place to see. For me, it's a great place to see a lot of front office people, uh, a lot of league people are there, and it's a good place to go in for a few days. But I always think about what would be really uh, I think instructive. You know, the USA basketball has the you know, the eight, 16 and under team, the 17 and under team, the 18 and under team. And I think like Shashevsky used to like shuttle those guys through like the national team. But like sometimes they would come through Vegas when the national team would be practicing and because they'd be recruiting half those guys and they'd come through and see LeBron and that team, mm-hmm. and, which was fine. Like out of those high school teams, maybe one of those kids might ever play in that team or two. You know? <laughs> but most of them, I always said like, when you're that age and you just think you're going to be a lottery pick and then you're going to get a max deal off of your 
rookie contract, I always felt like if you gave those guys a program and put them in the stands for two or three days at the G League Showcase and go, yeah, I see that guy down there. He was the number eight high school player in the country, and he went to this ACC school and then turned pro, and then he was out of the league in a year or two because that's how they would look at where they're standing are and go, there's 10 guys out there playing who were as highly regarded because most guys are going to – one way or another, most guys are going to end up in the G League. Well, I think I think now what's happening is is, is a little different, but I think it's becoming a rite, of, a rite of passage. So if you look at our league, we have – over the last couple of years, we have close to 40 kids playing in our league that were you know, top 30 high school guys. So guys like Nas Reed, um, Jalen LeCue, um, Lewis King, Jersey – like Jersey kid. Um, you know, this year we have um, Mario Chalant. Um, Jersey kid played played in my son's school player. So you have you know we we are now probably ten or twelve McDonald's All Americans. Um, you, you have those guys and becoming somewhat where even the younger kids see you know guys coming into the G League um, and having success there, and that almost being some of our teams is like a rite of passage. Like like last year in in San Antonio, Lonnie Walker played more G League games than he played NBA games. You know, yeah. so far, um, you know, is 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 just how teams are, right. are using. You know, you look at the finals last year. Like between Golden State and Toronto, of the thirty players, sixteen of the players had you know G League experience. Nick Nurse was a former G League head coach. So, is, is Nick, Nick coached like sixty percent of your teams? Yeah. yeah, he coached everywhere. Right, he like started, Incredible. launched teams, general manager, did yeah. everything. Uh, actually, Iowa, they're having, like, they're, they're turning their name, so they're the Iowa Wolf now. Friday or Saturday, they, they turned it back to the Iowa Energy, and they brought, they've had Nick back. He, he was gracious enough to come back to Iowa and did a Nick Nurse bobblehead night. That's, so that was huge. That's, <laughs> that that's huge great. for us. Yeah. Uh, Sharif Abdul Rahim, the president of the G League, will, will negotiate commissioner. Commissioner next. next, yeah, next. I'm work. <laughs> Maybe we'll work on that. Sharif, thanks. Thanks for coming right. in. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. No, thank a lot you. Of fun. No, this is awesome. Thank you for a lot of, a lot of good memories. Thanks for having me. Woj. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest, former NBA All-Star and current president of the G League, Sharif Abdur Rahim. You can listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out a couple of ESPN's other terrific NBA pods like the Low Post with Zach Lowe and Brian Windhurst and the Hoop Collective. We'll catch you next time.